Have you ever noticed that the best of things often come from the worst of things? The, the best, the very best of things often come from the very worst things. Life is full of surprises. And life with God is even more full of things you might never expect. That's the situation here in Jeremiah 24. The year is 597 B.C. That's the year that is dated in those words I read you in verse 1. After Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah and the officials, the craftsmen and the artisans of Judah were carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The Lord showed me, Jeremiah, two baskets of figs placed in front of the temple of the Lord. That's 597 B.C. Jeremiah has been prophesying for about 30 years at this point. He's on his fourth king, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. He went through some of them almost as fast as the UK goes through prime ministers. And Nebuchadnezzar has shown up on the scene and carted off 10,000 citizens of Judah, including a young prophet named Ezekiel. 597 BC, the exile has begun. It's a slow start. Not so violent as it's going to get, but many of the leaders have been taken away. The king has been carted off. And in 597 BC, the Lord shows Jeremiah two baskets of figs in front of the temple. Not sure if that's a prophetic vision or if they are real figs and the Lord just uses them as a prophetic object lesson, kind of, hey, Jeremiah, you see those figs? I want to tell you something about those figs. If they are real figs, there was a real problem. If they were supposed to be a first fruits offering at the temple, look with me at verse 2. One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early. Excuse me. <clears throat> One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early. The other basket had very poor figs, so bad they could not be eaten. Then the Lord asked me, What do you see, Jeremiah? Figs, I answered. The good ones are very good, but the poor ones are so bad they cannot be eaten. Do you get the picture in your mind? Two baskets in front of the temple. Both of the baskets full of figs. Good ones in one basket, really, really good. They're juicy, they're delicious, they're considered a delicacy. Mmm, yum. We, we just got some nice figs yesterday from Wegmans. Okay, And then this basket... On the other hand, of these bad figs. And they look like they belong in the compost bucket. Okay? So what does that mean? And don't tell me you don't give a fig. I'll, that'll make me a basket case. Oh, man. Did you miss me? <laughs> All right, I'll try not to make any more fig jokes. Because what the Lord has to say through these figs is no joke. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah. Whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good. And I will bring them back to this land. 
I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Whew. That sounds good, doesn't it? The strangest thing about it is that it's the exact opposite of what the citizens of Judah might have expected. Okay, we might have guessed that the two kinds of figs stand for two kinds of people, right? Might have guessed that one. And if we were really sharp, we might have even guessed that the two kinds of people are those people carted off into exile, like he was talking about in verse 1, and those who have remained in the land. But I don't think that anybody would have guessed which ones were which. I mean, Jeremiah is preaching to the people there in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. And they were not in exile. It seemed like they might have been safe. They might escape the exile. That judgment that he's been talking about, it's come. And the the bad figs have been drug off into the judgment of exile, right? Right? Right. Exile was punishment. Exile was discipline. Exile was judgment to this nation. But God often uses the worst things to bring out the best. Notice that he doesn't actually say that those in exile were good. And that's why they were going off into exile. Like it was just a, like it was a reward for something. He actually says in verse 5, I regard as good the exiles from Judah. I count them this way. It's like he's, he's choosing to see them that way. He's set his goodness upon them. It's, it's not so much that he sees them as good, but that he has planned goodness for them. That's why I took the first words of verse 6 to be our title for this morning. My eyes will watch over them for their good. Tov, that's that Hebrew word, tov. That's kind of our key word that we've been emphasizing all year round in 2022. We're praying that it's a year of tov, a year of good. The Lord has set his goodness on these exiles so that they are like a basket of good figs in his sight. They have a future, and it's a good one. Verses 6 and 7 are a lot like the most famous verse in all of Jeremiah, which is what? Chapter 29, verse... What's the one verse in Jeremiah everybody has memorized? Jeremiah 29, 11. That's right. Yep. He says this. It's right around the corner. We're almost there. We're going to get to the good stuff just a few more weeks, and we'll get to study it in depth. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Do you know who he's talking to there in chapter 29? Did you ever study the whole context around Jeremiah 29, 11? You know who he's talking to? The exiles. Read chapter 29 this afternoon, see what I'm talking about. He's not talking to people whose lives are going smoothly with no bumps in their roads. He's actually talking to people whose lives have been uprooted and he's talking to people who certainly don't deserve anything good and yet he has good planned for them 
Amen? Every step of the way. I have three points of personal application to suggest from these two chapters this morning. And here's number one. Trust in the Lord's gracious plan. Trust in the Lord's gracious plan. Because it's all of grace. This is all of grace. They do not deserve this goodness. But it is most certainly coming to them. Do you notice that word will in verses 6 and 7? I try to punch it as I was reading it. You're supposed to feel all of these. Let me read them to you again. I'm going to really underline them. My eyes will watch over them for their good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with all their heart. How sweet and strong are those promises. First of all, he's going to bring them back into the land. He says they can count on that. He will. The exile, as awful as it will be, and it will be truly awful, is not the end. There's a future after the exile. And do you see how he uses the language we first saw back in chapter 1? Especially verse 10. I just taught on this this week to the students at Miracle Mountain Ranch. When he called Jeremiah to be a prophet back in chapter 1, the Lord told Jeremiah he was going to prophesy so that the nations were six things. Anybody remember them? The first one is the title of our series, so that's what? Louder. Uprooted. Okay, good. You're with me. Uprooted. Don't make me start in chapter 1 again. Uprooted. Torn down. Destroyed. Overthrown. Rebuilt and replanted. Let me give you those again. Uprooted. Torn down. Destroyed. Overthrown. Rebuilt and replanted. Most of the book so far has been about the first four. But now, an increasing number as we get to the end of the book, we're going to get the promises of the last two rebuilt and replanted back in the land, back to the blessings, rerooted. But then it gets even better than that. God promises to give the people a new heart and a deep knowledge of Him. Look at verse 7 one more time. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with all their heart. Not by their own strength. This is something God will do. It's all by his grace and there is no greater blessing than to know God. This is personal knowledge. They'll know me, he says. This is the language of relationship. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the language of spiritual intimacy. This is what we talk about here, a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the language of covenant. In fact, it will take a new covenant for these promises to be fully realized. Just wait till we get to chapters 31 and 33 and we hear about this new covenant at work in his people. God is promising transformation and unimaginable blessing. My eyes will watch over them for their good. And not because they deserve it. In fact, during the darkest time they could ever imagine, they're getting this promise. Often the best things come out of the worst things. 
The people you might think are cursed are actually the ones to receive the most blessing. And the ones you think might be getting away with something most definitely will not. That's the bad figs in verse 8. But like the poor figs, which are so bad they cannot be eaten, says the Lord, so will I deal with Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials, and the survivors from Jerusalem, whether they remain in this land or live in Egypt, had run away. I will make them abhorrent and an offense to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach and a byword, an object of ridicule and cursing wherever I banish them. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them until they are destroyed from the land I gave to them and their fathers. They're not getting away with anything. Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, and all those with him who thought they were lucking out are actually headed for the compost pile. Here's the truth, though. For you and me who belong to Jesus... The Lord is watching over us for our good. Do you believe that? Might not seem like it. For one, we don't deserve it. And for two, it sometimes feels like we're in exile. Some of you are experiencing very dark days. But the light shines brighter in the dark, right? Tuesday is election day. And half of our nation thinks if one party wins, it will get darker. And if the other party wins, it'll get brighter. And the other half of the nation thinks the exact same thing. Just with which party is which switched. Who are the good figs and who are the bad? But the message I have this morning for us is that no matter how dark it gets, and it probably will get darker regardless of the party that wins, no matter how dark it gets, the Lord has his eye on us for our good. Because he has given us new hearts to know him. Trust in God's gracious plan. It might not be like anything you would expect, but it will be good. Now in chapter 25, Jeremiah jumps back in time about seven years before the vision that he gave us in chapter 24. You remember Jeremiah jumps around. This is like another flashback. This is two kings earlier. And he reminds the people of Judah how they got to this terrible point. And it was by tuning him out. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is 605 B.C., if you're taking notes. 605 B.C., a pivotal year in ancient Near Eastern history. Anybody remember what is the most famous battle of 605 B.C. without looking at your study notes? Anybody know the battle of Carchemish? Did you learn about that one in your world history class, the battle of Carchemish? 605 BC, that was when the Egyptians, they had been the world power, and the Assyrians, they had been the world power, went up against the rising 
people of Babylon, the Chaldeans and Babylon, and they went head to head. And who was the general of the Babylonians? It was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And that year then he became king. He won. Nebuchadnezzar won. And so he became the most powerful man in all of the Middle East and really all of the civilized or the, the, all of the, the peopled world of the time. This was also the year that Jeremiah delivered this prophecy. Verse 2. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem for 23 years. From the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. 23 years. I've been preaching here for 24 and a half years. But you have, for the most part, I hope, been listening to me. At least when I've been not making jokes, but telling you what's in God's word. Jeremiah was a broken record about a broken covenant for 23 years. And the people of Judah had tuned him out. You have not listened. Verse 4. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. Jeremiah is not the only prophet that's been talking to them for hundreds of years before these 23, and even during these 23. The prophets said, turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord gave to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not follow other gods and serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have provoked me with what your hands have made, idols. And you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish them. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This is what Jeremiah has been saying for 23 years now in a row. And it began seven years later. We just looked at that in chapter 24. But then it took another 10 years beyond that until it really came to its awful fulfillment in 586 B.C. Here's application point number two. Tune into the Lord's calls to repent. Tune into the Lord's calls to repent. It might have been too late for Judah, but this book is here now for us to learn from their mistakes. We have Jeremiah in our Bible so we can read it and say, why did they do that? 
And then say, ooh, sometimes I do too. I need to change. What has the Lord been trying to tell you to change? Maybe for 23 years. Part of this is saying that the Lord is amazingly patient. He's not just amazingly gracious, watching over those figs for their good, but he's amazingly patient, sending message after message to urge his people to repent. God often keeps sending us the same message over and over again in the hopes that we will tune it in and take it to heart. What has the Lord been trying to tell you to change? When you slow down and take a good look at your life, your habits, your relationships, your choices, what are the things that the Holy Spirit puts his finger on and says, this here needs work. This needs to change. You need to turn away from that and turn towards this. I know some of mine. Do you know yours? Judah did not want to hear about theirs. They put on their noise-canceling headphones and turned up the volume on their streaming service. Anything to keep from listening to the word of the Lord, calling them to repent. And though the Lord is amazingly gracious and amazingly patient, he is also unerringly just. He is righteous and holy and full of righteous wrath against sin. So he promises through Jeremiah to bring judgment that will last 70 years. Keep that number in mind, okay? You might want to make a mental note of that, 70 years. It'll become important. It stands for a whole lifetime and covers two full generations. None of those who are being carted off into exile will return unless they were, like Wilson, too young to remember it. Seventy years is a long time, but it's also a limited time. As awful as the exile will be, and it was truly awful, it will one day be over. And those whom God used to inflict the punishment will be punished themselves. Did you notice what the Lord called Nebuchadnezzar in verse 9? Anybody just completely shocked and scandalized by it? The Israelites would have been. It would have shocked the socks off an Israelite. He called him my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't normally talk that way about pagans. He doesn't normally talk that way about just any Israelite. And he doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar was a believer or a follower of Yahweh. He was not. Not, not at that time. And what he was doing was wrong and bad, attacking God's people like that. But at the very same time, the Lord was using Nebuchadnezzar as his servant to effect his will. The Lord has a way of bringing out the best of things from the worst of things, including people's very own sin. Doesn't excuse the sin, but he can use all that to do what he wants to do, like the cross, right? The very worst sin ever committed brought out the very best thing for you and me. Nebuchadnezzar was the Lord's servant. But that doesn't mean he won't be judged for his sin as well. Look at verse 12. 
But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. I will bring upon that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. See, Babylon is not going to get away with anything either. The very first sermon I preached here was a candidating sermon from Habakkuk chapter 3. And I got to say, this is exactly what God can do. He can use sinners and even their sin to affect his good will in the world. And then he will bring judgment on them for that. Remember, Jeremiah is a prophet to the nations. Not just to Judah, but to the nations. We're going to see that especially when we get to chapters 46 through 51. Some ancient translations actually move up chapters 46 through 51 to this point in Jeremiah. Copy and paste into the middle of chapter 25. Yes, the Lord is going to use the nations to bring judgment on Judah, but no, they are not going to get away with anything and will one day reap that judgment themselves. And that brings us to the second strong image of these two chapters, the image of a cup of God's holy wrath. Look with me at verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. This cup, or a cup like this, shows up again and again in our Bibles, both Old and New Testament. God prepares the cup and it, is, it stands for, it is full of the wine of his wrath against sin. Just, it's like poison, right? The one who drinks it receives the wrath of God. In, in verse 16, it says that they stagger and go mad, okay? I think that means that they are then defenseless against the sword that comes to kill them. So in that sense, it's not poison, but it leads to their death. Right? It's the same kind of general idea. In verse 15, the Lord tells Jeremiah to take this cup and make all the nations to whom he send it, to whom he sends him, drink it. Here you, drink this. Here you, drink this. Okay, now it's your turn. Okay, it's now your turn. To all these nations, drink this cup. I don't think it's a literal cup. I think it's metaphorical. The call here is for Jeremiah to prophetically pronounce this judgment on these nations, to make them drink it. And so he does. That's what Jeremiah does. Look at verse 17. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the towns of Judah its kings and officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn and cursing as they are today at the time of the writing of Jeremiah. They had to drink this cup. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
and his attendants losing at the battle of Carchemish. His officials and all his people and all the foreign people there, all the kings of Uz, all the kings of the Philistines, those of Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the people left at Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, all the kings of Tyre and Sidon, the kings of the coastlands across the sea, Deed and Tima, Buz, and all who are in distant places, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the foreign people who live in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, Elam, and Media, and all the kings of the north, near and far, one after the other, all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. And after all of them, the king of Shishak will drink it too. Shishak, interestingly, is a code name for Babylon. It's this really weird thing where you take the first letter of the alphabet and you substitute with the letter as far away from it as that one and you get a code word. When you do that with, like, like if we would say whenever you see an A, you put a Z, okay? And whenever you see a B, you put a Y, okay? They did that with Hebrew and Shishak becomes Babylon, Babylon. The one who brought the judgment to bring with, to begin with, will not escape it in the end. Drink from this cup, he says. Drink from this cup. This is what's coming to you. Drink from this cup. Verse 27. Then tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Drink. Get drunk and vomit. And fall to rise no more. Because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. See, I'm beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name, and you will indeed go unpunished. And will you indeed go unpunished? No. You will not go unpunished. For I'm calling down a sword upon all who live on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. Drink. And then he unleashes a torrent of words and images to describe what drinking this cup is like. Verse 30. Now prophesy all these words against them and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread the grapes. Shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth. For the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword, declares the Lord. See how this is getting bigger and bigger? It's more than just the Middle East. It's getting eschatological. It's taking over the whole world. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Look, disaster is spreading from nation to nation. A mighty storm is rising from the ends of the earth. At that time, those slain by the Lord will be everywhere, from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be mourned or gathered up or buried, but will be like refuse lying on the ground. Weep and wail, you shepherds. Roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock, for your time to be slaughtered has come. You will fall and be shattered like fine pottery. The shepherds will have nowhere to flee, the leaders of the flock no place to escape. Hear the cry of the shepherds, the wailing of the leaders of the flock, for the Lord is destroying their pasture. The peaceful meadows will be laid waste because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he will leave his lair. And their land will become desolate because of the sword of the oppressor and because of the Lord's fierce anger. Make no mistake about it, the Lord is holy. The guilty will not go unpunished. 
Justice will be done and will be seen to be done in all the earth. I'm sure there will be true fulfillments of these promises in the Old Testament. But as I read it, it seems to go bigger and bigger and envelop all of the judgment of all time. That language about treading out the grapes with the red spurting, that's Revelation 14. One day the cup of the wine of God's wrath will be drunk by all the nations and it can't be refused. They can't say, oh, no thanks. No, he will say, drink it. Accept. And you know where I'm going, right? You know where we're going next, right? We're going to the cross. Except if someone else drinks the cup of God's wrath for us. As much as this passage should chill our bones and move us to tune our hearts to repent before God's unerring justice while there is still time, it also should warm our hearts as we think about what Jesus did for us at the cross. When he drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? He was sweating drops of blood. And he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not as I will, but you will. He drank the cup for us. Here's point number three and last. Thank the Lord for drinking our cup. Thank the Lord for drinking our cup. The Father said, verse 28, to save them, you must drink it. And the Son said, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross and absorbed the just wrath of God for our sins. One of my kids said that they had an encounter with a Muslim at work this week. And this man was trying to convince my kid that Christianity did not make sense. I give him points for trying. He said, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would be punished for our sins. I mean, why would you punish someone else and not the one who did the thing? It's a good question, right? I'm not saying that I would do it like the Lord did. I wouldn't. But I sure am glad that he did. It may not make sense, but it sure is good news. Because God brings the best things out of the worst things. And because Jesus drank from that terrible cup, we can drink from this wonderful one. Amen? Remember what happened in the upper room the night that Jesus was betrayed? The Gospel of Matthew tells us, Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. And he said, Drink this. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This first Sunday of November, 
Let us thank our Lord for drinking from our cup by drinking from his.